Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex savvy. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick Anderson. This is part two of an episode on paraphilic infantilism, more commonly referred to as adult baby syndrome. And if you listened to last week's episode, you'll know that I interviewed an ABDL, adult baby diaper lover, who is a patient of mine. And he shared his story about his love of diapers, his erotic interest in diapers, and in role-playing and regressing to engage in infant-like and young child-like activities. I've received a lot of feedback about that episode, and I just wanted to share a couple of the emails that I got with you. A woman named Miranda in Texas, she wrote in, as he said, he's not hurting anyone, so live and let live. A man named Jason from New Hampshire wrote, he sounded like a completely normal, nice guy. I definitely get a beer with him. So thank you, Jason, for that feedback. A woman who asked that her name and state not be disclosed wrote, even though he's not hurting anyone, I can't help but feel sorry for him. And a male who also requested that his name and location not be disclosed said, I can relate to wanting to give up control. Adulting is exhausting. So I'm curious to hear from other listeners as to their impression, their reaction to hearing about this particular fetish, which is, of course, quite taboo. Today I'm going to be reading to you some of the writings of Kent Perry, who was the sort of formal leader, innovator in terms of this fetish and bringing it into the public eye. I mentioned him last week, but today I want to read a little bit of a memoir that he wrote. And I'm also going to be interviewing, as promised, a professional dom who specializes in being a mommy for ABDLs who are seeking role play. So I'm going to talk to her about what the most common scenes are that men request from her, what her boundaries are, and what she thinks is behind this particular fetish. So I'm glad you're with us, and let's get sex savvy. When I talk to my patients about their fetishes, it's almost invariably the case that they recall a memory, a moment where they sort of fell in love with their fetish, the object, the sensation, the experience, and they can keenly recall this moment. And it's been just so consistent in my clinical practice that I now expect someone to be able to tell me about the moment that they fell in love with ropes or high heel shoes or diapers or enemas or inflatable toys. 
And I wanted to read you now a bit of a memoir from the actor Kent Perry, that was his stage name, who was responsible for the development of the ABDL community. And his ads and writings in newspapers were clearly influential and possibly the starting point for what ultimately became the ABDL community. And he talks about this moment where he fell in love with diapers. So I thought I would share some of it with you because I think it really captures the magnitude and the meaning of the early experience and how it becomes so powerful. So he wrote, I remember the moment very clearly. I was standing to the right of my mother who was diapering my recently born brother on her bed. I was almost five years old and it was as though a light went off in my little head. I wanted to wear diapers again. I wanted to be a baby again. From that moment on, I spent my childhood and teenage years creating and making diapers and plastic pants. I used towels, old pillowcases, and anything else I could find as diapers and cut plastic to form pants with which to cover my diapers. And even though this was a crude recreation, it excited me like nothing else. I collected diaper pins, baby bottles, and pacifiers, most likely left over from my younger brother, and kept all of my bounty in a cardboard box, which I hid in various closets and in my playhouse. The playhouse was a room behind our garage, which was used mainly by me. I used this room to stage Halloween, haunted houses, and other theatrical events. At one point, I dug a hole in my father's lawn and buried my baby gear about 10 inches below his prized lawn in a cardboard box. I was afraid that his mower would find its way into my secret hole each time he mowed the grass. One day it did, and he was not happy. I don't remember exactly when I wet my diapers for the first time, but it was probably around age seven or eight. And I do remember the euphoric feeling when I filled my diaper. I should add here that my family was very conservative, and my childhood was absolutely a happy and content one. I was either in school, church, or at a Cub Boy Explorer Scout meeting most of the time. I was popular in school and an officer in all the best clubs. Summers were spent at a boys' camp. By the time I was in high school, I was wearing my baby creations almost every night, even though I shared a room with my brother. He caught me a couple of times, but had no idea what I was wearing. I was also buying toddler plastic pants in Woolworths, a store downtown, into which I could barely squeeze. But this was an improvement over my homemade plastic pants. I remember the day I purchased my first pair and how hard my heart was pounding. It was possibly the most exciting purchase of my life. I continued this during my college years and began ordering diapers, cloth, as there were no disposables then, and even ordered rubber pants from a source in the back of a muscle magazine. They were not helpful, and I quickly went back to plastic. I'm going to skip ahead now to another section of his memoir, and I'm just reading particular excerpts that I thought would be poignant for you to hear. He goes on to say, 
So I was having fun, but I was very lonely. I knew I couldn't be the only person doing this. I knew there had to be others out there, although the fetish literature I was viewing did not reflect my interest in any way. I was finally free of roommates in late 1970, and underground newspapers became very popular and they began publishing personal ads, more often than not dealing with fetishes, which no one before had published. Each week, new boundaries were crossed and people with unusual kinks burst out of their closets, it seemed. It was the 70s and sexual freedom was everywhere. I took a deep breath and decided to place an ad sometime around the beginning of 1971, I remember. I chose a newspaper as far away from me as possible, the LA Free Press, which was printing these personal ads out of Los Angeles. I sent them my ad, which was rather generic and innocent, asking that people contact me at my newly rented postal box for protection, and sent my ad with payment off to Los Angeles. I was very nervous. I received a reply quickly and opened the envelope to read a terse note from a woman who seemed to be shocked that I'd place an ad to have, quote, sex with a baby. I was horrified as that was not at all what I intended, of course, or what my ad expressed. I sent her a quick explanation, which she accepted, sending me a note of apology. And my first ad was published. The day I received my first responses was earth-shaking for me. I think I got three or four letters forwarded to me, and I rushed home, luckily only a block away, to rip them open. I found letters from three or four men telling me that they'd never thought they would ever be able to see an ad like mine, which matched their interest so exactly. They all thanked me for being the first to have the guts to do this. I made three or four new friends, and I was energized and excited, placing more ads, both in this publication and in The Advocate, a gay paper, and later in both Screw and Fetish Times. I received more and more responses, and I introduced people to each other during this period. In several cases, people lived in the same neighborhood, never thinking they'd find a new friend so close. Our little community grew and grew during the early 1970s. I'm going to jump now to the end and read you the conclusion. He wrote, Due to the computer, as well as a permissive sexual climate, perhaps, our community has grown by leaps and bounds all around the world. Other than the computer, the other event which has contributed to our community is the availability of the disposable diaper. These became more and more popular as styles were introduced during the last part of the 20th century. Many of us actually preferred disposable diapers and switched to them as soon as they were available. Others continued to be partial to cloth diapers with baby pins and plastic or, when available, rubber pants. It is good that we have both options these days. I often hear folks compare plastic-backed disposables with cloth-backed ones, But before the prevalence of disposable diapers, the debate centered on whether one preferred curity diapers or those made by bird's eye material. There was also a small group who preferred a triangular diaper with only one pin holding it together in the center. This wasn't easy to pull off and most of us wore two pins, one on each side of our cloth diapers. 
We now have many individuals and companies making baby furniture, as well as clothing, strollers, car seats, and other equipment baby items in adult sizes. It is certainly a good time to be an adult baby or diaper lover. One can only wonder what the future holds. I have continued my personal ABDL daddy activity as well as meeting others in small gatherings, organized munches, large parties, and conventions. This activity and sharing of knowledge and experiences will only increase, and I wish I could be around for a hundred years from now to see where we have gotten, but alas, that isn't possible. I am now in my early 70s, and I can honestly say that putting on a diaper gives me very much the same excitement as it did when I was six years old. I continue to see this fetish or activity as a bonus, and one which has given me a great deal of pleasure. So for those of you that listened to part one last week, you will have heard Eric, my patient, describe his fetish and the role it has played in his life. And hopefully you noticed some themes and similarities between the two and how for both of them, the internet really opened up a whole new world. I want to move now to my interview, and it's really a treat to be able to speak with this particular professional dom and professional mommy. She's the only mommy in LA that I know of who has adult-sized baby furniture salon available to her ABDLs. And she speaks about that in the interview. It's pretty rare to find a professional mommy who can provide that kind of experience for ABs who are looking to engage in role play. The way that I met her is actually through my patient, Eric, who was excited to introduce me because he thought that she would be a great person to interview about this. So without further ado, I'm going to shift now and allow you to hear that compelling interview. Today, I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Mistress Josephine Drake, who is a professional dominatrix, and she has a practice here in Los Angeles, and she has been a dominatrix for over 25 years. So I'm very excited to chat with her. Welcome, Josephine, to Sex Savvy. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I know that you have a full line of services that you provide, but as we were chatting prior to the interview... I explained to you that I really wanted today to focus on age play and adult babies and your role as a professional mommy. Right. Uh, so can you talk to my audience a little bit about what all that means and what is involved? Sure. So I kind of, I've always had an interest in age play. So that means that one or both of the participants are pretending to be much younger than they are. So usually it would be like a little kid or a teenager, and in some cases a baby with sometimes another kid, or but usually it's more of an adult figure. So I do a lot of mommy little boy scenes, and sometimes I do scenes where the, the well, this is what's great about role play is that you can start off with someone who's pretending to be a teenager who may be, you know, 80 years old. 
<laughs> and then that teenager is behaving so immaturely that I have to, you know, treat them like an even younger child. So that's where some of the baby play can come in sometimes where they're acting like a baby. So I have to treat them like one, mm-hmm. you know, and they may not even realize that that's what they're seeking until they get there. Usually I would not introduce baby play unless the person I'm seeing has requested it because it does have a, it is actually strangely one of the more taboo kink activities. Oh, of course. You know, I mean, people that are into really heavy BDSM play and blood play, you know, you talk about diapers and they go, ooh, that's gross. You know, they get freaked right? out. And then you're like, wow, I freaked you out. You know, I think baby play, diaper fetishes, because the men I've treated are always afraid that they're going to be assumed to be pedophiles. Yes. People are going to assume that because they want to be regressive in that way that they must have erotic interest in children, which is virtually never the case. That's right. Yeah, it is a real concern. And it's one of those fetishes that if someone's not into it, they are really not into it. And particularly, you know, when you start getting into diaper play, it really is a risk to tell a partner. So I can understand why somebody would remain closeted for a long, long time. It takes a real act of courage to reach out and connect with another person. I mean, at any rate, and then to also have to disclose this pretty transgressive, mostly unaccepted fetish to a potential partner is very scary. Yes. And the men I've treated over the years have remained closeted for the most part. A couple of them have shared it with their partners and their partners have ended the relationship. And then a couple have shared it with their partners and their partners have actually participated. And some have shared with their partners and their partners say, I don't want anything to do with it. But if you want to do it on the side, you know, I can live with that as long as I don't have to be involved. So those are the kind of options that I've seen. That's right. Yeah. And I think that it's very sad when a relationship ends based on a rejection like that. However, at the same time, you know, maybe in the end, it's better that one can get one's needs. It's not a choice. You know, it's one of these things that some people really, really need. And I don't, you know, I'm sure you know more about this than I do. But in a sense, it's almost like a sexual preference that you don't get to pick whether you're straight or gay, you just are this way. So. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I work with men. One of the things I do is I help them kind of distinguish between whether this is a requirement, something that they're exclusively dependent on, or whether it's something that they can enjoy as an enhancement and how much wiggle room they have. So if someone's exclusively sexually responsive to diapers or you know age play, they're going to have a much more limited capacity to express themselves. The patient that I see that you work with is lucky in that he can have conventional heterosexual sexual relations with his girlfriend. He doesn't need the diapers, but it makes it more exciting and more intense for him, but it's not an absolute requirement. So I think the more wiggle room you have, the less conflict you have as well. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear all kinds of different things from people I see professionally about, you know, some people are very lucky they find partners or they're in a relationship already and the partner is totally into it. <laughs> so, Well, people are meeting each other on FetLife, which I'm sure you, you know, about. they're actually seeking other adult babies or other people with similar fetishes from the get-go so that they can kind of get that out of the way and there's no big disclosure process and anxiety. It's because, yeah, I met you and you met me and we're both into this. So that's a good thing. And I think that for marginalized people or for people who feel isolated, websites like that can be life-changing. 
Absolutely. And in fact, I've been to some age play parties here in Los Angeles. And I went assuming because I've been to age play, I kind of stopped going to parties for a long, long time up in, you know, I'm originally from San Francisco. I'm actually relocating back there in the summer, but I've lived in LA for three years. And since I've been here, I've been going to more parties again. And I went to an age play party expecting to see a range of people in different kinds of roles. But I have to tell you, it was, I would say it was 85% babies. And I was very surprised that a lot of them were quite young, like folks in their 20s, which was amazing because when I used to go to age play parties in San Francisco, it was more like school age Mm -hmm. type roles. And so it was surprising to me to see so many babies there. It was pretty cool. Walking around in onesies and diapers with their little pacifiers. (laughs) And is it mostly men? No. And in fact, I'm very involved in the spanking scene as well which is a bit of a distinction from the baby scene, but there is some overlap. And I met a couple of gals there who were a little bit closeted about their baby play, but they disclosed to me once I got to know them a little better that they wanted to be babied by mommy. So. so tell me, Josephine, your take on how you understand this. What are the psychological themes that are driving this for men who want to have this regressive experience? What do you think? Well, you know, that's a very complicated question because I think it is highly individual, but the general driving force I think is true for a lot of BDSM play, which is that whole power dynamic, that kind of will to submit, you know, this deferral of responsibility, this letting go and surrendering to somebody else who's just going to totally take care of you, even if they're humiliating you. (laughs) You know, the whole crux of the thing is kind of based on somebody else, it's control and letting go of control, which I think most humans, you know, whether you like going to get a massage and just, you know, melting onto the table, or, you know, you want a dominatrix to put her boot on your throat. (laughs) You know, these are all different modalities of getting to kind of a similar place, weirdly enough. For some folks, there's an erotic component and for some there is not. Yes, speak about that, because I think people assume that orgasms are always involved. They're not. They're absolutely not. I think that there's usually some eroticism. It's certainly sensual, you know, so there's definitely, you know, a physicality to it. So for some folks, it's very, very sexual. And the whole point of it is kind of getting off at the end. And then for some folks, it's more of an emotional catharsis. Yes. I hear that a lot from my patients. Yeah. And I'm very flexible. You know, I tend to... I enjoy playing with folks and finding out who they are and finding out how to get them into their headspace that they're trying to get into and to push that in different types of ways. But I do tend toward more captive style babies. So there's, this is my own kind of metric that I've kind of discovered. When I first started playing with babies, I was working with another dom in San Francisco who kind of specialized in it. And so I hadn't played with them before. And so the first person I saw and seen was someone who really wanted to be treated like a baby baby. And I found myself, um, and this is no offense to people that like that, I found myself really bored by it and feeling kind of drained by it, weirdly enough. So I found... Because motherhood is draining. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I had worked at a daycare earlier on, and it is draining. So it was like this person really just wanted to be, you know, I don't really do snuggling in session. I'm, I'm physical and I'm a little affectionate, but there's like a personal boundary where I don't I have to keep a personal space for myself and not let the people I see professionally in there. So I found myself just really not enjoying it. So what I realized is that I like people that, I mean, it's not across the board. I can't make a unilateral kind of declaration about it. But generally, I like folks that the baby stuff is kind of a punishment or a disciplinary tactic or just some sort of driving 
perverse desire of the figure that I'm embodying for them so that, you know, maybe I'm like their school teacher, but I've always wanted a little baby of my own. I've never had a baby. And so, you know, I turn the, you know, errant student into a baby. So there's something about like coveting and there is like a captive thing where I'm taking this person, I want them so badly that I'm turning them into like an object of desire. So I think that's one thing about baby play that is, even if the baby's being terribly abused, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever terribly means. I mean, I don't do things with people that they don't consent to and they don't want. You know what I'm saying? It's still that all 100% of my attention is focused on this person. They're completely controlled. They're completely swaddled and wrapped up. And arguably, the crib is basically like a cage. Mm -hmm. So it really is in the high chair. And they're often their bodies have to be controlled because we don't want baby falling off the bed and hurting themselves. So it's this way of controlling. And the bathtub is also this kind of, you know, womb-like space. So Yes. So people are hearing you say crib and high chair, and they're probably having trouble imagining. You literally mean a crib big enough for a full-size man and a high chair big enough for a full-size man. Yes. In fact, I have a adult size high chair that I can get, you know, very large person into. And my crib is seven feet long and seven feet high. <laughs> so it's a big, you can get a big baby in there. Sounds like a king size bed. <laughs> it is kind of, well, it's actually a twin, but I get the long, what do you call it? An extra long twin mattress for that. But yes, that actually belonged to the mistress that I worked with. And I told you, she actually loaned it to me because she's retired mm. now. So mm-hmm. I was very lucky. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know of any other doms in California that actually have a real full on crib. So I've exactly. been um, catering to that crowd. <laughs> yep. And my patient that works with you, he did his due diligence and he did yeah. a lot of research. I'm sure. And I don't know if he ever told you this, but he found you online about 10 years ago. Oh, uh-huh. And was tempted at that time to reach out and never did. Mm-hmm. So you and your services have been on his radar for a decade. I've heard this from other people, yeah, that, oh my God, I saw your ad back in the 90s. Yes, yes. So there's certainly this sort of ongoing, consistent, compelling interest, right, that men talk about. So let's talk about, because I'm sure my listeners want to know exactly what the hell is going on here. So talk about how you negotiate scenes in advance with your clients, and also what are the actual you know, are you feeding? Are you changing? Mm -hmm. Tell us what you're doing. Okay. So the negotiation, it starts with an email and some people are better at this than others, but I usually, I ask them to describe their past experience, their session interests, including preferred tone. That's actually super important. That might be the most important thing is the tone of the scene. And then, you know, depending on, you know, sometimes It starts off with a role play where, like I said, they're boyfriend and they've been acting out and they've just been being bratty and I'm just at the end of my tether and, you know, or sometimes their partner has sent them to this very special facility for the regression of males and some of the, (laughs) not the person that we've been talking about, but a lot of people that come to see me want to be sissy babies. So they almost get turned into a doll. Which is very interesting, you know, that whole feminization, which that's a, another can of worms we could get into. But that's right. That's right. What does that mean exactly? But I tend to usually think of it as I'm turning them into a plaything and a doll and kind of a precious object that might also be like kind of, it's an object. So I might, you know, treat it a little bit in something of a kind of degrading way as well. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, along uh, the lines, yeah, go ahead. So I think that men feel like, 
it's hard for a man to be precious in that way. And so I think that in terms of the gender play, Mm -hmm. that to connect to that, they have to be a little girl to feel like they can really experience that dynamic. A lot of the men I've treated in the past who are heterosexual like to be little girls when they're being dominated. Yeah, it's fascinating. Right. Right. So talk a little bit more about just age play in general and the range of scenes and the dynamics that your clients are seeking. Well, I think for sure it's definitely got a taboo quality because like you said earlier, it does touch on that. You know, I do a lot of mommy play. So if there's an erotic component, it kind of dips over into kind of an incestuous dynamic, which is also very taboo. And so for some folks, that's super hot. Obviously, isn't, we don't do that. I'm more maybe like a neighbor or a teacher or but generally, you know, like I said, it usually it's anywhere from teenager back to infant. But most of the folks I play with, we start off in a bit of an older role. And they're just not, they're not making it in that role. They're failing. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> right, which is great because we all feel like, you know, all adult humans feel in some, you know, we're, I don't know, perhaps it's American culture. I don't know. We expect a lot of ourselves. And in some ways, we all feel like failures in one way or another. So this kind of like letting go and just submitting to that and then having this whole, you know, absolution that happens or somehow like, yes, I don't have to pretend anymore that I'm succeeding as a grown-up. So there's some kind of release of that. Yes, yes. I don't have to pretend that I'm competent. I don't have to pretend like I'm successful, you know. And it's very liberating from what my patients have told me. Well, and bondage does the same thing, you know, like this thing where, okay, you don't get to pick anymore. Now you, and it's a way that I think for some people, it really helps them relinquish control and really fully relax. Right. I actually like, a lot of people like employer, employee. I do that too. But my, I think I really do attract probably because I like it so much. I like older, like mother, aunt, probably I really love being mommy because it can be really perverted. I really like to be kind of loving, but twisted, like a loving, twisted mother. And you know what, Josephine? The reason that your clientele, at least the ones that I know, are so satisfied is because you get into it. I had met Mistress Damiana on a show recently, and she talked about how this is not, when she's in her dominatrix role, she's not pretending. No, we're not pretending. We are really not pretending. I don't mean that all doms are not pretending. Some obviously, but the ones that are really for real, they are not pretending. We are accessing something that is inside of us and just like letting that part of ourselves out. And it is, you. I think you mentioned archetypes when you were talking to her, when you and I were talking earlier. And it really is true. You're accessing something. I don't feel like I'm acting at all. I feel like I'm this part of me that's already there is kind of just being amplified and let out to play. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like how I imagine kids playing. They're not acting. They're pretending, but it's you really lose yourself in the pretend. Definitely. And I think it makes a difference. I think it's a, a more meaningful and more therapeutic experience to be with someone like you who really can connect to that role as well. I want to ask you a little bit about the interest in actually soiling and wetting the diapers. Sure. And actually, if I could just mention to you, I'm sorry, I don't mean to go back, but I just need to tell you that I did this hilarious, fabulous session with Damiana. I don't know if I'm at liberty to discuss it, but I took my son, quote unquote, to the pediatrician who was Dr. Chi. 
So those kinds of scenes can be really fun where, you know, I'm the mother and I'm kind of playing dumb about the whole thing. Like, oh, Dr. Cheese, show me all these things. You know, and meanwhile, we're completely ganging up on the submissive. So Right, right. So there can be a more complicated plot. Absolutely. And sometimes even in a session, you know, I'll be the teacher. I'll have the person I'm playing with. Often there's spanking involved in the corporal punishment, not in the baby scenes always, but where, you know, I punish and then I say, okay, well, clearly your behavior is so out of control. There might be something physiological going on. So I'm going to have to take you to the nurse. So I take them, I put them in a gown and then I leave the room and go put on my nurse's uniform. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then Mm -hmm. I come back as the nurse. So, I mean, it's just... So much fun. It's camp and it's iconic stuff. And it's like the stuff that porn is made of. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. So you were asking about soiling and wetting diapers. So yes, I tend to not enjoy soiled diapers. Sometimes I prefer to simulate messes in a variety of, I have a couple of little tricks I do. I do change dirty diapers sometimes. It's not my favorite thing. So talk about your tricks. Could my patient mention some of your tricks? Sure. Well, sometimes I'll be feeding them apple. Like I have these, I get these giant bottles of applesauce and I'll be feeding them. And then if they can't finish it, then I'll dump it in their diaper in the back. So they're sitting in this wet, soppy, dumpy mess. And then also sometimes I will take a banana and I will insert it inside of them. And sometimes I put a little suppository up there to kind of encourage it to come back out. So, you know, it simulates the feeling of having a bowel movement. Right. But then it's a banana. There's usually a little bit of, you know, soil that comes out with it. Yeah, it's a little, it's just a little less, less poopy. Yeah. (laughs) So what would you say to the people who are listening right now? Because one of my missions in doing this podcast, which I mentioned practically every episode, is to destigmatize and depathologize sexual differences. And so what would you say to the people out there who are just shaking their heads, thinking that you are going to burn in hell? <laughs> well, I probably am. <laughs> <laughs> and that your patients are deviant monsters that need to be castrated and locked up. What would you say to them? Well, I would say to them that you don't understand it, but that doesn't mean that it's, there's anything wrong with it. When somebody starts asking me about BDSM, I'm like, well, I'm not into that. I think, well, have you ever been or had a partner who has, you know, held your arms down when you're having sex, you know, gotten rough with you or you've gotten rough with them? Like that is sort of, you know, that's one end of the spectrum. So there's this huge spectrum. And, you know, that's the thing that really freaks people out is the diapers. It's so taboo. It is. It's infantilizing. It's primal. It's animalistic. It's infantilizing. That's right. And I think there's a fear of the body there in terms of like, you know, babies and then, you know, old age also. I think there's a sort of mortality thing there. And we do. We go from diapers back to diapers. Right. So you can talk about golden showers and people like, oh, that's weird. But if you talk about peeing in a diaper, that's going too far, you know. So, you know, I don't know what to say about that. Somebody who's going to have a problem with what two consenting adults do in their bedroom, you know, or whatever that they do in a play space. You know, I don't know what to say about that. There are some types of play like scat play, which, you know, I know doms that do it and that's cool. For me, that's a limit. So I have my limits and, you know, that's the thing. It's like, it's not to impose my subjectivity on somebody else's experience, which is that I don't want to do it. I personally, you know, that's not a way I want to play. That doesn't mean that, you know, you can't play that way. You know, if you need to do this thing to 
have a, you know, we're in this body. And if you have an urge to do something that's, you know, consensual and not hurting anybody and not taking advantage of a less powerful, you know, creature or person in your life, then why not? (laughs) So as far as the diaper play goes, you know, the wedding and the Again, it's this control thing. And it's about taking control of not only the body as an object, but it's also the internal part of the body. So I think that that's part of the psychology of the wetting and the soiling. It's a humiliation to some extent, the control. Weirdly, again, sorry I keep using that word, but (laughs) strangely, if I had a dom friend, I know some dom friends that do brown showers, as we call them, and that seems less it kind of grosses me out. Like, and again, that's not a judgment. That's just me personally. The idea of going to a public toilet and doing that. And I understand this was probably because this person didn't feel they could. Well, I don't know. Maybe that was part of the kick for them. I have heard some stories. I don't know if we want to get into talking about it, but it was both for my patient. It was, he didn't have access to a partner. And he also, the part about, you know, getting a stranger and using their excrement without their knowledge or consent was just an incredible turn on for him. Yeah. Okay. I kind of get that part, even though, yeah. And I actually have a friend who was a male dom who had a client he used to see that was into collecting dog feces and eating it. So that for me is just a real limit. <laughs> it's funny because I'm hesitant to even talk about it because I'm, I don't like pathologizing sexual behavior of most sorts. And then again, like that doesn't really hurt anybody except the person doing it maybe if they get sick. So I hate to have such a strong visceral compulsion yes, yes. to it. I mean, Josephine, all the time yeah. people will say to me, family, friends, you know, yeah. strangers at a cocktail right. party, they'll be like, how do you sit there and listen to these things and A, not vomit, B, not, you know, want to punch them, C, not (laughs) kick them out of your office. I think that's so foreign to most people. And they honestly can't wrap their head around how I can even sit with it. And, you know, I don't participate in, you know, the unconventional or alternative sexual lifestyles at my patients. I'm a pretty vanilla girl. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. But my exposure to these lifestyles through my patients and my comfort around discussing it and my openness to, you know, wanting to be a champion and ally to destigmatize, people feel safe. But the people I know are just so absolutely horrified and mortified. And I think it makes them super uncomfortable. (laughs) Well, you're doing good work. I mean, it's really important. I think so. I think so too. Absolutely. You as well. You as well. (laughs) I do enjoy myself. Well, it has been a true pleasure talking with you. I hope that you can come on again. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. We can have a part two. Great. And if anybody wants to find you, how would they do so? They would go to my website, which is mistressjosephinedrake.com. Okay, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'll be encouraging my listeners to send in their responses to our conversation today, and I'll be sure to share them with you. Mm -hmm. And good luck in your transition back to San Francisco. It's a loss for LA. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I enjoyed being on your show. So there you have it. That wraps up part two of this episode on adult baby diaper lovers. I hope I've broadened your horizons a tad. I hope you're starting to gain a deeper appreciation for sexual differences and becoming curious about 
ways in which sexuality manifests. I have an episode coming soon on teledildonics, which is the intersection of sex and technology. I'll be focusing on innovations in sex robots. I also have a sexological somatic body worker who will be talking about how he helps patients overcome blocks and obstacles. And I will be interviewing someone about female sexual addiction, and we'll be talking about how women can engage in sexually compulsive behavior and how we treat that. So thanks for listening, and I will catch you soon. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.